Well, good morning again. I love singing that song. I, I love the the portion of it that man. There can be sorrow that leads to joy. There can be fruit. There can be fruitfulness in our laboring in the gospel while we're weeping, and that the promise of that, the result of that, will be that the nations will say, not the nations maybe will say, but according to that psalm, the nations will say. And so, um, it's good to be reminded of that truth. In melody, turn with me to First Corinthians chapter fifteen. This week concludes our. Uh, we did a, uh, have done a short series, really surrounding. We began this the week after Easter, uh, but this passage of scripture really speaks to the crux, if you will, of our Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus. But not just that, but Paul has repeatedly pressed in on this idea of. Uh, our union with Christ uh, means that we will bodily rise. And so we've seen how there's a sect in the church of Corinth that has denied the bodily resurrection for various reasons, uh, mostly, I think, because of their love um, for um, just godless ideologies and philosophies, this hard-hearted posture um, that they were bucking against this idea. And for the Apostle Paul... And thus, it should be with us uh, to deny our bodily resurrection is to deny the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus himself. And so we see that this uh, doctrine of the resurrection of the dead uh, is a core Christian doctrine. It's a core Christian doctrine that has been confessed by our brothers and sisters all throughout history. And, uh, and I fear that perhaps we have underemphasized this doctrine in our day and age. You may not see a lot of statements of faith uh, that um, they may speak to the second coming of Christ, perhaps, but they don't speak necessarily of the details of our bodily resurrection, those in Christ to eternal life, those outside of Christ uh, to the eternal wrath of God in hell. And so this is an essential doctrine for us to confess, for us to subscribe to. And this morning, we're going to look at the last eight verses uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I'm going to read those verses, and then I'm just going to make, really, I'm going to spend a lot of time uh, on the beginning part of this section and uh, compared to my last two points this morning. So just know if uh, it seems like things are getting winded and I'm only on point one, uh, I am aware. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Starting with verse 50, the Apostle Paul, he says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote these words to the church of Corinth, right? God's preserved it. We have these words for us now. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Verse 30, 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he goes to quote the Old Testament here. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Then we shift here. Verse 57. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, right, because of all the ground that we've covered, because of all of chapter 15 here, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this passage, God. We thank you that we thank you of its significance, God. Every single word documented in the scripture is significant, and we don't need to gloss over it, God, or brush it to the side. We need to wade through it. We need to seek understanding, seek clarity, God, and Lord, help us in humility to do that very thing this morning, God. Help us not only to wrestle to understand what this text means, but help us by your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives, God. This is your living, breathing word, God. And you've preserved it for us. And we're here not by accident on this Lord's Day, gathered as the church, opening it in freedom and reading it, God. And so help us to understand the significance of that. Help us not squander that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing, and what I'm going to spend most of my time on this morning, is this very point. A glorious change must and will take place when Christ returns. A glorious change must and will take place when Christ returns. And we see that in verses 50 to verse the first part of verse 54, really. And, and I'm going to kind of just work through this, not necessarily in sequential order, but I'm just going to pick up on some, some key ideas that the apostle is talking about in these uh, four verses here. But because of sin, those, those who who sleep, as the Apostle Paul puts it, are divided. They're divided, right? So, so when a person goes to sleep, which is to say when a person dies, when a person goes into the ground, right? If you're alive today and you're dead tomorrow, what happens is there is a division between your body, this vessel that you're now occupying, and your soul, they become divided, right? There, there's, your soul goes on to be with the Lord, right? We know that the Bible teaches us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we're not, uh, uh, we're, we're not in some uh, strange sort of holding tank. We're immediately those in Christ. We're, we're present with our Lord. We're present with our Savior in heaven. But the body goes into the ground, there, there's a change that has to take place. There's something else that needs to happen that's coming, that we're waiting for, that God in Christ has promised to deliver on, that indicates that, that, that we need to be changed, that our flesh and blood, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, needs to be changed. And, and this change is really about our glorified state. Right? Our souls must be reunited with our body. They must be reunited with our body. And those bodies will correspond to our bodies now, but they will be changed. So they're going to correspond, as we saw last week, to the bodies that we have now, but our bodies must be changed. They must be glorified. And this is a doctrine that, that perhaps you've heard of, a doctrine known as the doctrine of, of glorification. And you've probably heard it in a list with other uh, doctrinal categories, right? Justification, sanctification, 
glorification. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. And perhaps some of you may have heard that language, but haven't spent a lot of time studying it. Let me just give you a, a quick definition. One theologian, he puts it this way. He says, the glorification of the Christian is that we shall share in God's glory when we are in our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be experiencing deeper fellowship with God and not be at risk of falling away into sin. God's glory finally will be all in all. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. It's what it's all about. We will receive a glorified body just as Christ received by the power of the Holy Spirit, a glorified, resurrected body. That's what we're waiting on as Christians, right? When we talk about sowing while we're weeping, and we talk about the Lord harvesting what is being sowed as we're weeping, what we just sang about, right? Definitively, that's going to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to see the fruit of labor, that, that perhaps this side of eternity we may never see. We may labor and labor and labor and die. And what uh, is a result of the fall, which is thorns and thistles, right? Our work is thorns and thistles. We may die in that, but one day we'll see the fruit of laboring and thorns and thistles. And we'll see it clearly because all the thorns and thistles will be done away with. Right? The garden will be weeded. So as we're busy fulfilling the Great Commission... And we do so by investing in our homes. We do so by worshiping with God's church publicly. We do so by evangelizing people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. As we do so, we do, we do all of that knowing confidently that God's plan for eternity will be successful. We do so knowing that the next thing to happen is for Jesus to return, grant us glorified bodies, and definitively make everything new. So those in Christ will at the last day be resurrected because the Holy Spirit of God brought Christ from death to life, a bodily resurrection. Now, again, in our text this morning, Paul, he's continuing to press in on this, and I want to highlight some things for us to kind of help solidify what he's actually saying to the church of Corinth. But look in the Look in the text and notice right at the very beginning of the passage that I just read you, we see the words flesh and blood. Right, flesh and blood. I mean, if we think about this passage contextually, we see that the Apostle Paul using the language flesh and blood, when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we see that what he's saying is we do have to be definitively changed. What Paul is not advocating for is a spiritual resurrection. Right? He's, not, he's not all of a sudden agreeing with this sect in Corinth that's denying the bodily resurrection of, their, uh, of themselves. Right? He, that's what he's pushing against. But Paul's saying that a change has to happen in order for flesh and blood to inherit the kingdom of God. And we can harmonize Paul's insistence on a physical resurrection with other passages of Scripture. For instance, we see in Luke chapter 24, we see... The resurrected Christ in verses 39 to 42, Jesus tells the disciples this. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy 
and were marveling, he said to them, you got anything to eat? That's what... They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it. See, look, would a spirit eat food? I'm eating food, right? And then we know from Paul's teaching elsewhere, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, that we're going to have a body like Christ has a body in the glorified state. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the first advent, he's talking about the second advent. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, get this, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And we've heard that word, that phraseology of subjection in 1 Corinthians 15 already as it relates to the second coming of Christ. Christ will present a world in subjection to him, to the Father. The purpose of using this phrase flesh and blood, is to remind those at Corinth that we're on a trajectory toward death. As it is now, we're on a trajectory toward death, which demonstrates for us, right, which is the evidence for us that our body and soul is infected by sin. Right, This side of eternity, because of the fall of man, we're sinners, and we add to, this, to that very first original sin our own Sins. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but it's as if in our sins, we're saying amen to the sins of Adam. We're adding to that original sin. And we experience various sufferings of different kind, not necessarily as a result of our personal sin, but because we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. Our bodies are breaking down. Our bodies are headed toward death. And so this flesh and blood, as it stands now, can inherit the kingdom of God. Furthermore, I think of this uh, just a, uh, a few chapters earlier, if you were to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and look at verses 9 to 11, I think that further helps capture Paul's intent when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and starting in verse 9, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? So I, th- I think that what Paul's saying by flesh and blood is our unrighteousness and the consequences of unrighteousness. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said, don't be deceived. And then he goes to give a list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on. Verse 11. A glorious passage. And such were some of you. Right? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Right? Unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul lists specific sins, and he lists them in such a way that when we read them, none of us are off the hook. Right? None of us can look at this list and say, he didn't mention me. He did. If you don't think he did, should probably be reconciled to God. But he lists, he gives us a list, and he says, in, in, in effect, he's saying flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But he gives hope in the resurrected Christ, and by the Spirit of our God, we're washed, right? we're sanctified, and we're justified, just as the church of Corinth was. Right? And we're waiting, just as the church of Corinth is, we're waiting on our glorified bodies, which is what he's pressing in on in chapter 
15, right? So this side of eternity, what we have with flesh and blood, it cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But because of our triune God, we're moving toward the day, right? We're headed toward the day when our flesh and blood is changed, when it's different, when it is no longer plagued by those sins that we've been delivered from or those sufferings that we've experienced as the result of living in a fallen world and in a fallen body. Our fallen bodies will one day transition to unfallen bodies, or rather, a glorified state. Now, we also see in this passage two other phrases that kind of speak to the natural progression of things. And we've already seen several times, or a couple of times in in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is giving us an order of events, if you will. But we see the progression of things that, that demonstrate this glorious transition that needs to take place for the inheritance of the kingdom of God. We see... Uh, perishable, we see the word perishable, which refers to our current state. It must lead to imperishable, right? We see that in verse 50 and verses 52 to 54. Then we see mortality, right, which is our current state and how mortality must lead to immortality, verses 53 to 54, All right, Paul's saying that what is corruptible, what is perishable in Christ gives way to what is incorruptible, what is imperishable. That's what we're moving toward. Now, think about this for a moment. What what we're doing is we're headed toward a state that is better than the state that Adam and Eve were in. God's not trying to... He's not trying to take us back to the good old days. That's not what's happening, right? We're not looking backwards saying, man, we just got to get back to that state, to the Garden of uh, Eden there, right? Adam and Eve had a potential for being corruptible, and we see that they, in fact, were corruptible. There was a serpent in the garden there, right? We're headed toward incorruptibility. We're headed toward a place where sin is no longer possible. We're headed to a place where we're inaccessible to our enemy, who's the devil, right? God's not bringing us to a place of neutrality, which is where Adam and Eve are, were. He's bringing us home. He's bringing us home, and it's, it's a good home. It's a better home. He's making us like Christ, and we will be with Christ. He's glorifying us because of the glory of His Son and because He's granted us union with His Son. So we're headed towards something better. We're going to something better. Now wrapped up in this section is Paul revealing, and this is already obvious to to you, us having worked through this, but he's revealing, he's calling all of this a mystery. Right, and, and, and this sect in Corinth, they certainly love their mystery. They love their philosophies. They love, again, we saw last week how they loved questions without answers, and they pretend that they haven't come to conclusions when in reality they, they have come to conclusions, so much so that they're arguing with an apostle who has delivered to them the gospel in the first place. And he says, hey, let me tell you a mystery. It's as if when he says the word mystery, they're probably going to lean in like, man, he's going he's gonna to let us he, he, on the inside, on the inner circle. And this mystery is all of this, what he's talking about, and how it will happen when Christ Jesus returns. He said, here's the mystery. All of this stuff I'm talking about is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. In his second advent is when you can expect these things to happen. And we see this timeline, and Paul gives this timeline earlier. A couple of weeks ago, we spent time on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
But we see this timeline of sorts. And in First Thessalonians chapter 4, which I've already read to you in the series, we can kind of harmonize these two passages together. Maybe some of your minds went there to First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. We see the Apostle Paul speaking to the church of Thessalonica. He says, For the Lord himself, and he's speaking of Christ, the second advent of Christ, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, right? We see trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. We see trumpet here in 1 Thessalonians 4. It, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are meant to encourage Christians. Right? When, when we... Um, are wrestling, when we're struggling, when we're weeping as we're sowing, reflecting on, meditating on the second advent of Christ, God and Christ coming back, making everything new, that should provide for us hope, should provide for us gospel hope. We have gospel hope now. The second advent of Christ is a doctrine that isn't uh, relevant to us once it happens. It's relevant to us even now in our perseverance of the faith. That's how it was used here in the New Testament. But we see very similar language here in 1 Thessalonians 4 to that of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, both with speaking of trumpets, speaking of the Lord uh, coming back, speaking of those who are alive, who are the dead in Christ rising, being first. Those who are alive, who are left, will be changed and caught up together, right? And with 1 Corinthians 15, we know this happens in the twinkling of an eye is where uh, we get that from, what we read a moment ago. But what we need to see is Paul is pressing in on the second advent of Christ. Christ will return, then those in Christ will be glorified, and then that is it. And then that is it. There's nothing that's coming after that. All right? Christ came once in his incarnation. Right? That was his first advent, and then Christ will come a second time, permanently, in his second advent. The text, and, and really the sweeping testimony of Scripture it doesn't indicate that Christ is coming halfway, then he's coming back up to the heavens, then he's coming back down at a later time. Right? The scripture teaches that Christ returns once, and then all men will stand before him in judgment. Some will stand before him in Christ, and some will stand uh, before him as those outside of Christ. Now, some point to this passage in 1 Thessalonians, if you don't mind me belaboring this a little bit, and, and they harmonize it with 1 Corinthians 15 as they should, but they see what some call a secret rapture is where this would come from for some people. And this teaches that Christians all over the world are going to disappear and that all, the only people that are left are non-Christians, and then there's cosmic events that are to happen beyond that. But I don't think that the Apostle Paul is speaking to that at all when I see this passage. He's giving us clear timelines, both in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And what we see clearly in both of those passages is that when Christ returns, the dead will rise bodily, and they'll rise to what is called a glorified state. All right, we do see the, the Greek word for rapture here, which is harpazo, which is better translated as this forceful, violent taking, but we have to always allow for the context of Scripture to dictate words. We don't want to build a theology around a single word. We want to read the, we want to read the Scripture 
naturally and not force anything to it. And I wanted to give you, just show you how this word is used elsewhere to demonstrate how we need to allow context to dictate words and verbiage. Acts 23.10 uses the word rapture, that harpazo word. It's in verse 10, it says, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force. Harpazo is used for that. Take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks, right? Paul being rescued there, right? And certainly we read this knowing this isn't just referring to uh, a type of secret rapture, right? And given the context and all the places that we see this word used, we can conclude the same thing. The significance of the word is more about passion and force, this sort of violence to it in the moving from one place to another. And in 1 Thessalonians, it's referring to when Christ and his people are reunited, right? God in Christ is reuniting, forcefully, dramatically reuniting the bride of Christ with Christ Himself, And in this context, and this is, this is what we often can miss, it's referring to every single Christian. Every Christian ever. Past Christians, present Christians, the Christians that are there when all of this stuff happens. Past, present, future. All of God's people are going to meet Christ and they're going to spend, the text says, forever with Him. They're going to spend forever. The text literally says they will spend at all times, forever, together with the Lord. And what about the joining in the clouds? Right, those still alive will join the dead in Christ and meet Him in the air. And it would be more appropriate for us to think of, of, of Christ in the air, us meeting Him, as us greeting a dignitary. Right? We're, we're meeting Him and escorting Him, if you will. We're meeting Christ, the King of heaven and earth, and and we know from what we see in Revelation 21 that we will live with Jesus forever in the new heavens and in the new earth, right? So we're not living in the clouds forever, at least the way that we think about uh, clouds. We're not living in heaven the way that we think about heaven forever. This isn't the place that we're going to be upon the return of Christ. Our, our bodies in the body of Christ is meant to live forever in a renewed earth, right? The earth that God promised Noah that he'd never destroy again. It will be renewed. It'll be the same, but different. Much like our glorified bodies will be the same, but different. So according to 1 Corinthians 15, and through harmonizing that with 1 Thessalonians 4, we see Jesus is coming down. We see that the dead in Christ will rise. We see that those alive in Christ will be changed into a glorified state. We see that, that death is, in fact, the last enemy to be defeated. And we see that those in Christ from all time will meet Christ in the clouds as he descends. The world in subjection to Christ is handed over to the Father, and the heavens and the earth are definitively made new. They are renewed. We live with all of our brothers and sisters from all time and in all places with our triune God forever. Happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> now flip back over to 1 Corinthians 15 with me, because I want to make sure that we make one more note for this section, which is the we in this page. Verse 51, look at verse 51. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, right? The we implies, and I I think this is important for us, but it implies that Christians in that age and in every age since stand waiting as if Christ might come in their time, right? They stand waiting as if Christ might come in their time and if they might be found faithful, right? And as we'll see in a moment, that should have a tremendous motivator for our lives now, Right? So a glorious change must take place when Christ Jesus returns. And we as Christians don't live in this world disengaged from what's going on. We live engaged with what's going on because we stand waiting for Christ's return. All right? We're standing as people that are watchful of Christ's return, and that motivates the way that we live now. So a glorious change must take place, and that happens when Christ returns. Secondly, Christ's victory is our victory. Christ's victory is our victory. That's verses 54, the second part to verse 56 there. Right? Death is swallowed up in victory. Right? Paul would be pulling this phrase from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, and I always want to make sure that when we can, I show you how the Apostles utilize the Old Testament and, and how the Old Testament finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 25, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the, heaven has sp- for the Lord has spoken. It will, say on that, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Sounds like parts of the psalm we just sang, right? Psalm 130, right? Waiting on the Lord. Let us be now glad and rejoice in his salvation. Right? Then we see a sort of taunting. This is the Apostle Paul utilizing the Old Testament to show how the life, death, and resurrection of Christ taunts the enemy. And I love this. I love the taunting of an enemy, right? I mean, it's, it reminds me of Elijah when he calls down fire from heaven on the, um, when he's, he's going against the, the bell worshipers. And he's, he's, as the bell worshipers are they're cutting themselves. They're doing all this grotesque stuff trying to, to prove that Baal is the god of gods. And, and uh, when nothing happens because Baal isn't real, he says things like, maybe he's asleep, Right? Maybe he slept in today. There's this taunting, right, that's showcasing the glorious kingship of our God, the exclusivity of our God, which I'll mention again in just a moment when I read, uh, I'll read it now to you. But the, the taunting is, oh, death, where is your victory? Right? Oh, death, where is your sting? He, he's pulling this from Hosea chapter 13, right? Specifically, verse 14, I shall ransom them. From the power of Sheol, I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And in this context of the Old Testament context of this is the Lord uh, judging Israel to help demonstrate that He, in fact, is the only Savior, that He is an exclusive Savior, that He alone is the one that delivered them from Egyptian slavery and brought them chains unbound into the promised land. And and, and here we see a teaching of a lesson, which if you're even familiar with the book of Hosea, we hear about the... um, 
what uh, God puts uh, Hosea through in order to demonstrate his own faithfulness. But we see these Old Testament passages that Paul's using and he's applying them as he should to the victory that Christ secured in his bodily resurrection and that he will definitively bring about in his second coming. Right? No one can secure victory like our God. Right? And Paul uses these quotes to demonstrate to us that our victory is certain because Christ accomplished, he acquired victory in both his humiliation, right, his life, and in his death, and his exaltation, his resurrection, and his ascension. And as we've seen death, and the reason why we see death being taunted here is because death is the final enemy to be destroyed, right? So often we complicate the second coming of Christ when it's, it, it's Christ coming and conquering death through, the, for, through our own bodily, uh, uh, us coming back from the dead, in a glorified state. But death is the last enemy to be defeated, and death was ushered in by sin. But what's interesting is Paul's use of the word sting. He uses the word sting, which in our passage means destructive power or deadly venom. Right? How is the devil described in Genesis, in the garden? He's described as a serpent. Right? He's described as a serpent. Right? And serpents sting. Right? Serpents can be deadly. Serpents have venom. Right? The sting from the serpent, which is sin, is what has occasioned death. And Paul is saying that will be undone definitively at the second advent of Jesus, at the return of Christ Jesus. Right? In the, in the garden, Adam, as a federal head, he should have crushed the head of the serpent. He should have protected his wife, and he should have crushed the head of the serpent, but that's not what happened. Right? Jesus, however, who the Scripture calls the second Adam, he did exactly that. He crushed the head of the serpent through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, and upon his return, he'll remove the sting. He'll remove the sting. He's going to undo all of the consequences. So the victory of Christ Jesus is our victory. Third and final point, the bodily resurrection of Christ and of ourselves gives purpose and fruitfulness to life now and in eternity. The bodily resurrection of Christ and ourselves gives purpose and fruitfulness to life now and in eternity. I hinted at this at the beginning of the sermon, but verse 58, therefore, right, in light of all of this, what we've covered, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? We, we see the indicative here, which is what God in Christ has done for us right, and is going to do uh, at his second coming. And then we see the imperative, therefore do this. Live in light of this fixed Reality. Your labor will produce fruit because it's not in vain, right? He picks up the word vain from earlier in chapter 15, which means <clears throat> your labor will not amount to the sum of zero. All right? It has significance. And just a couple of passages to help solidify this for us. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 and 9, you don't have to turn there, but just earlier in the letter, said, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything 
Right? But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Right? So it's the Lord who's, who's going to produce, it's the Lord who makes our labor not in vain. Galatians 6, 9-10, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will weep if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right? So there, there is concrete application as it relates to the second coming of Christ and as it relates to our glorified state with him. Right? So, so the apostle is saying we should be steadfast. This is the language he uses, which is not don't turn aside from the resurrection of yourselves. Right? Don't turn aside from the resurrection of yourselves. Again, this is a critical doctrine to, to be led astray by this sect in Corinth, to allow someone to tell you there's no resurrection of the dead, is to turn aside from the resurrection of Christ himself. So be steadfast in what you've been learning and what you've been taught. Be unmovable. Right. So not only should you not yourself turn aside from this doctrine, but don't allow anybody else, don't allow any external influence to turn you aside from this doctrine. The work of the Lord, we see that phrase. We should be about the promotion of God's kingdom. And Christ told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I've said this many times, but we should believe that that prayer is effectual, that it will really happen, that, that God's kingdom will come and His will will be done on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. And we're to be about that work the promotion of Christ's kingdom, starting in our own homes and expanding from that. We remember it's not in vain, right? The deniers of the bodily resurrection would, would make that labor in vain, but it's not in vain because they're not right. The dead in Christ will rise, and it's because Christ Jesus rose, right? So what are, what are some things that we can take away from just wading through this, especially these last several verses here. And, and again, we put, this, uh, we put this stuff down so that you don't have to uh, panic about jotting it down, but I'm going to just read some takeaways from us in light of this passage. The first is this, knowing that there's an eternity should inform how we view and treat people. Knowing there's an eternity should inform how we view and treat people. Those in the early church anticipated the return of Christ. This anticipation promoted a balanced urgency in how they spoke to others about sin and about Christ. A balanced urgency in how they spoke to others about sin and about Christ. People are made for eternity, and we should speak and treat them with that in mind. So it should inform, knowing there's an eternity, should inform how we view and how we treat, how we speak to people. Secondly, we shouldn't adopt a similar view to those in Corinth who viewed material as bad, even as it relates to the earth. Right? God created this earth, knowing that the earth will remain, but in a renewed, glorified state, again, much like our bodies, should shape our labors and perspective now. We should be engaged not only with the promotion of the gospel, but in cultivating and subduing the earth. Christ's lordship will be known in all corners of the earth, not just through our her heralding of the gospel, but through good stewardship of the garden. 
the garden that he's told us to tend to, right? There will be carryover from this state into the new earth. There will be carryover from this state to the new earth. And then finally, the Holy Spirit produces fruit from the thorns and thistles of our labor. The Holy Spirit produces fruit from the thorns and thistles of our labor. Therefore, we should persevere knowing that God is accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish through us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the time that we've had in it, God. Lord, we know that, Lord, your, your word doesn't return void, that it's uh, going out and accomplishing exactly what you want it to accomplish. And so, Lord, we open-handedly say, have your will in our lives. And, uh, and Lord, as we move into a time of remembering the finished work of Jesus, strengthen our faith as Christ is spiritually present with us as we partake of these elements. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.